Good morning, church. If you're watching online, good morning and welcome to you as well. I, I want to begin this morning by talking to you about how fortunate uh, an Italian hospital was that they didn't have a significant fire emergency in the last 15 years. And part of you is thinking, well, isn't that every hospital? Well, yes, every hospital should be thankful they haven't had a major fire event. But this hospital in Italy in particular uh, should feel very blessed that they didn't have a fire emergency uh, because 15 years ago, they hired a man by the name of Savator uh, to oversee or to give leadership to their fire safety department, which is great. Apparently, you know, he had uh, knowledge and skills and experience Uh, to bring leadership to this role. Now, I I have no idea what a fire safety person does at a hospital, but you can imagine that it entails things like making sure the sprinkler system is charged and works. You can imagine it means things like making sure the smoke detector system in a commercial building is functional, that the fire extinguishers are are filled uh, to the right pressure and ready to be deployed in case backup generators work in case something goes down. And so Savator brought knowledge and experience, everything to this role. They hired him. Uh, The only problem was that he didn't show up for work for 15 years. Just this last April, they discovered, uh, they looked at phone records and some attendance records that apparently were kept somewhere that nobody paid attention to. And they're like, "Uh, our fire safety guy hasn't been here for 15 years, right? So if there's a major fire event and they're like, "Uh, where's the fire safety guy? He's not there, right? And so all this knowledge, all the experience, all the wisdom that apparently got him hired for the job, None of that matters if he doesn't actually show up to do the job, right? It doesn't matter if he's qualified. It doesn't matter if he's knowledgeable. If he's not there, he can't do anything, right? Here's why I tell you that story. I I think for some of us, last week, Pastor Steve talked about putting on the full armor of God, right? And the the significance of that. Here's what I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest to you that some of us are battle ready. We've just never bothered to get engaged in the battle at all. Right? So listen to what Pastor Steve talked about last week. Let let me just kind of summarize this. Let me read for you the fruit of the Spirit. This is Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the reason Paul describes putting on this armor, right, his assumption is that you put on the armor to be ready for a battle that you're actually going to engage in, right? But my observation is for some of us, we've put on the armor. You've got the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. You've got the sword, which is the word. You've got your feet fitted with the readiness. The problem is we never actually get engaged in the mission that God has called us to, right? It's not just that we're supposed to be battle ready, it's that we're actually supposed to engage, let me, let me switch metaphors for you. Think of it this way. Uh, the Jacks are playing kind of a big game today, right? Historic national championship. Go Jacks. We're rooting for you. Um, I don't know if we're allowed to say that we're praying for them to win, but I think that is probably okay in Brookings, South Dakota. So we want that to happen. But, but imagine this with me, right? You, you, can, you, you better believe every player on that team wants playing time today, right? I mean, this is a historic game. So imagine this, right? Everybody's ready. You've got this particular player. You know, he, he's, he's got pads on, helmet on. He, he's suited up. And, and imagine Coach Stig looks at him. He's like, gives him the wave, right? It's time. Enter the field. And he stands up and he goes, Coach, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I don't want to mess anything up. I'm just, I'll watch. Catch you after the game, Coach. You'd be like, What's wrong with you, right? This is your moment. Get in the game. I mean, you've practiced, you've prepared, you've planned, you've been with the team all season. Get in the game. 
right? But it doesn't matter how well he's practiced, how well he's trained. If he doesn't actually engage in that moment, none of his skill, who, who cares how gifted of a player he is? If he doesn't engage in the game, none of that matters. And church, what I want to suggest to you is that we are called, we are called to live sent to serve God's mission in the world, right? It's not just that we're supposed to be battle ready. The reason we put on the full armor of God is to engage the mission that God has put in front of us. And I think we see this all over the New Testament, this idea that the people of God are sent to carry out the work and the mission that God is unfolding in the world. So let me walk through a couple chapters where we see this. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, it says this. This is Jesus speaking to the apostles. It says, he, Jesus, said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. No, notice what Jesus says. He tells the, the disciples, he says, you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Notice that Jesus says, you will be. He doesn't say, hey, if you guys aren't too busy, uh, if it's convenient for you, if it's not too intimidating, would you guys mind being my witnesses? right? It's not an apologetic ask. Jesus says, when the spirit comes on you, when you are empowered, the spirit is going to compel you. You will be a part of this transformative work and mission of the kingdom of God and the redemptive work that he's unfolding. You will be witnesses, right? Likewise, in Matthew chapter 28, uh, as Jesus is commissioning the disciples, Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20 says this, it says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age, right? Jesus' word to his disciples is go. You are a sent people. You should be about the work and mission that my father's unfolding in the world. Likewise, I'll mention Ephesians chapter six because we just uh, spent the last several weeks working through Ephesians. But Ephesians six fifteen says this. It says, your feet should be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And if you remember, Pastor Steve talked about this idea that feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel envisions uh, the, the footwear of the Roman soldier that were like spiked cleats, which means you were dug in, you have traction, you are ready to engage, right? And over and over and over throughout scripture, we see this idea that as disciples, of, as those who are following Jesus, and when he ascends to heaven, he, he calls us to carry on and to carry forward that mission. Now, here, here's the other significant thing about putting on the armor of God, Right? When you put on the armor, you also identify the army and the cause that you're working on behalf of, right? When a Roman soldier puts on Roman armor, they signify, right, my identity is that of a Roman soldier. This is the community and this is the cause that I'm a part of. And so when Paul tells the believers to put on the armor of God, what he is saying is there is a fundamental identity shift that you are taking up and taking on the cause of Christ, in fact, one of the key pieces of Roman armor, the belt of truth that Paul talks about, in the Roman army, it was common practice for a Roman soldier to, to embellish their belt in a way that signified who they were and what company they were a part of, right? Now, I can't say the soldier decorated the belt, right? They didn't decorate it, but they would put things on it, right? That would signify, here's who I am, here's what I'm a part of. Now, if a soldier, say, was absent without leave or deserted, his commander would call for him and ask him to take off his belt with his sword, and it was a moment of humiliation when the commander said, you are no longer a part of my unit. 
because the belt was a key part of their identity. In fact, this was so true that in 298 AD, a centurion, this would be a commander in the Roman army by the name of Marcellus, became a Christian. And when Marcellus became a Christian, he said, I can no longer fight for the cause of Rome. And he took off his belt with his sword and he dropped it at the feet of his commander. And he says, I will no longer fight for Rome. I am now fighting for the cause of Christ. And that was a moment for him as saying, my identity is no longer with the cause of Rome. I have a new identity and a new mission. And so church, when we talk about putting on the armor of God, we are talking about a fundamental identity shift that our community and the cause that we're a part of fundamentally changes. And the reason we get battle ready is because we are supposed to actually engage in the mission of God that he's called us to. And so that's what I want to flesh out for you today is this big idea that we are called to live as disciples of Jesus Christ, on mission, invested in the work that he's called us to. So let me break this down for you. First of all, let's talk about uh, where. Where are we to be engaged in this mission? And again, let me turn your attention to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. There it says this, and this is Jesus teaching. He says, but you'll receive power when the Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here I think Jesus provides a model for what it looks like to be about the mission of the gospel. And that model is this. In talking about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, it's, it's local, it's regional, and it's global. Paul says the significance in the, or, or uh, Luke, the writer of Acts, says the significance of this mission is that it will affect and influence the local communities that you're a part of, but the effect and influence of this gospel is going to have global in, implications. And so this model is important because it's not that, that global or local or regional is more important. It's that they have to function together because when the local church is healthy, we should be sending people in, into global ministry, into regional ministry. And next week, we're, we're going to talk about some of the global impact that we're a part of and even people from our own community who've been sent to serve as missionaries in a global reality. But right now, this morning, I want our focus to be on how do we live faithfully invested in the mission God has for us right in our own community. Because as Jesus commissions the disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he tells them, don't leave Jerusalem, wait here. Be witnesses right here, right in the community, right in the context where God has you. So hopefully for us that raises all sorts of questions. How, how do we serve locally, right? How do we make an impact? And, and so part of what I want to do this morning is break it down and simplify it for us. Because I think when we talk about being a part of the, the, the mission of God, talking about making a change in our communities and culture, part of it we look at and we go, okay, but where do I start? How, how do I make an impact? How do I begin to even make a difference? And here's why I think this is important. If we, if we make it too complex, we let ourselves off the hook, Right? It's too hard. It's too difficult. I don't know where to start. I don't know how to make a difference. So I'm just going to live my life and do my thing. And before we know it, we find ourselves battle ready, but not engaged. But what I want to suggest to you is already in the passages that we've looked at, uh, uh, being a part of the mission of God is, is really simple. So let me break down three components that are part of what it is to live as a disciple on mission. The first one is this. In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus tells the disciples, you will be witnesses. A key component to living on mission is to be a witness. And, and I love the simplicity of this because all that a witness does is talk about their experience. So let me ask you, where have you seen the faithfulness and provision of God in your life? Where have you encountered the truth of God in his word? Where has God made a fundamental difference in your life? All you have to do is bear witness to that. All you have to do is tell other people about what you've seen Jesus do in your life. I think it's fundamentally that simple. The second component of this is uh, found in Matthew 28, and it's this idea of teaching. 
Jesus tells the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, this is, this is the one where you usually get pushback, right? Because you go, teaching, you go, well, pastor, I, I don't have a degree in theology. I, I don't know enough about the Bible. Who am I to teach? But I want you to think about the context of what Jesus is saying. When he sends the disciples, the disciples that he is sending were not learned intellectual people. These were men who had been a part of his everyday life. These were men who had watched how Jesus lived and worked day in, day out. And, and previously in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, learn from me, take up my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when Jesus says, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, he's not saying, go and teach a systematic theology course. He's saying, go and tell other people what it is to be a disciple. Go tell them about the pattern and rhythm of my life, about the truth of what I've taught you. And church, I think it's that simple. It's to bear witness to the things that you've experienced God doing in your life. And it's to tell other people, listen, in my discipleship, as I follow Jesus, as I read the word, this is what it looks like. And finally, I think it's as simple as having a gospel readiness. From Ephesians chapter 6, 15, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. And I think gospel readiness looks like this. It looks like a willingness to see the opportunities for divine interruption that come our way every day. I think this involves praying, God, give me eyes to see and ears to hear the spiritual needs that are all around me day in and day out. So maybe it's Monday morning, you're walking into the office, you happen to see a coworker walking up at the same time. How was your weekend? Uh, not so great, they might respond, right? You have an opportunity. Do you push in? Do you ask the follow-up question? Or is it like, I just need to run to my desk and finish my coffee as quick as possible, right? Gospel readiness is about learning to see things with a sense of gospel urgency about how we can bear witness to the redemptive possibilities of God's grace and tell other people about the beauty of what it is to follow Jesus as a disciple. Now, let's get even more practical. Living out a new identity in a new mission often means that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we're going to live life in such a way that causes us not to fit in with the context of culture around us. So when we live as disciples on mission, identified with the cause and the commission and the calling of Christ, often what that means is culture is going to look at us and we're not going to conform to the rhythms and patterns of culture. We're going to look fundamentally different. Often what this means is we live as what the Bible calls exiles and strangers. It means we live in a community even while we recognize that our citizenship is in the kingdom of God and we live not conformed to the culture of our local communities, but we live conformed to the calling and character of Christ. We live conformed to the calling and compassionate care of the kingdom of God that looks fundamentally different. So I want to get even more practical as we talk about well, how do we live as exiles and strangers in this culture even as we bear witness? So I have two case studies for us. First Peter chapter two, and I want to look at Jeremiah chapter 29. First Peter chapter two, verse 11 and 12 says this. Peter writes to the church and he says this, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Now, notice how Peter addresses the believers. He calls them exiles and strangers. What does that mean? It means that they don't fit the pattern of the culture around them. It means that they stand out a little bit as they model conformity to the call of the, the, the culture of the kingdom of God. They function differently. And notice what, what Peter says. He says, abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. In other words, he encourages them to model the culture of God's kingdom. 
I'm going to call this the day-to-day practice of our faith. The part of what this means to live on mission as exiles and strangers, as day in, day out, live out faithfully the practice of our faith in a way that models the culture of a new kingdom. So this might mean that boss who's really difficult to get along with, right? When everyone else is tearing them apart, you offer forgiveness and compassion. This might mean that when you experience the dysfunction and brokenness of your own family, rather than letting resentment and anger and bitterness take root, you are faithful to diligently pray for your family and to offer compassionate kindness and forgiveness. But Peter calls and encourages the disciples to model a new way, a new culture. Second uh, case study I want to look at is Jeremiah chapter 29. I think a lot of us are familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Uh, great verse, right? But in the context of that passage, Jeremiah 29, 10 says this, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my promise. Let me translate that for you. God is telling the people of Israel that they're going to spend 70 years in exile in Babylon. So when God says, I know the plans I have for you, he's encouraging them. He's saying, hold to the faith even over the next 70 years while you're in exile in a place that you didn't choose. He says, I I want you to hold on because I'm doing and unfolding something. Now, in the case study of how God tells them to engage as exiles, this is important. Listen to this, Jeremiah 29 verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if you prosper, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And what, I, what I'm intrigued by is that in Jeremiah 29, as the people are living in exile in a place, in a country, in a culture that is not theirs, that they did not choose, God says, I want you to practice redemptive presence. I want you to work and pray and be a part of the peace and the prosperity of this pr- place right where God has you. Now, l- let me ask you this question. Have you ever gone through a season that feels like in a legitimate way exile? Maybe you, you've worked at a difficult job with a boss that just is an unkind person that you can't stand. And you've prayed, God, would you open a door? Would you provide another job? And nothing opens. And God has you in this place. And you're thinking, God, why am I here? Or maybe you live in a neighborhood with a neighbor who just is unkind or, or is, is always on you about something. Or maybe you have a family member that's just really difficult and you've been praying and yet it seems like this difficult season continues. And I think part of what God calls the people of Israel to is to work and pray for the peace and the prosperity of that place. In other words, practice redemptive presence. And often what happens is in exile, we're looking for an escape when God is saying, I want to use you as an instrument of redemption right in that context. So church, catch this, right? Let us not be eager to flee the very place God has called us to redeem and transform through his grace, right? And sometimes we're looking to just get out of a place as quickly as we can. And God's saying, I want you to set down roots for a season and I want you to minister faithfully in this place. Can I just tell you, I don't like that very much. I would much rather pursue something that feels convenient and comfortable. 
Third thing about what it is to live as exiles and strangers as we live out this mission is just the simplicity of prayer. What strikes me is that in each of these passages, Jeremiah 29 verse seven says this, it says, pray to the Lord for this place because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In Ephesians chapter six, verse 18, it says this, this is right after the, the armor of God. Pray in the spirit on all kinds of occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, it says this. To the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Church, if we don't know what else to do, one of the core fundamental components of what it is to live on mission for the cause and the kingdom of the gospel is to pray diligently for the places, the context, and the communities right where God has you planted. And, and this is the one I think as Christians sometimes we write off. Like, I don't know what else to do. I guess I can just pray. It, but it's never just prayer. I, I think we need to start being amazed and even scandalized by, by the audacity of prayer. Do you, do you ever think about how audacious it, audacious it is to, to go before the very presence of God anytime you want? Right? Like, I can't drive to Pier, knock on the government mansion and say, yes, I'm here to see uh, Governor Nome." They'll be like, who are you? Right? And I'll walk away in handcuffs, like as a, right? Because I trespassed on this. I, I can't just go and meet with important people anytime I want. Right? You have to have an appointment. You have to have security clearances. I don't know what their process is. And yet the God of all creation says, hey, anytime you want, you can approach the throne of grace with freedom and confidence. That is audacious. That is scandalous in my mind that the God of all creation lets us pray anytime. Church, it is never just prayer, but we have the call and we have, should have the sense of urgency to be constantly interceding, to praying on behalf of our families, our communities, our neighborhoods, our workplaces. And church, if we're not praying for those contexts, who is? The call to pray literally doesn't matter if we don't actually pray. Too many of us are battle ready. We've got the armor on, but we're sitting on the sidelines unwilling to engage because it makes us uncomfortable or we don't feel like we have the time. But there are deep and urgent places of need and despair that are depending on the people of God to show up and bear witness to a new, better, redemptive way. Finally, I think it looks like this. It looks like persistent service, right? In 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 10, it says this. It says, each of you, and remember, Peter is written to exiles and strangers, right? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. I love this, that he says, use whatever gift. And sometimes we want to play the comparison game of like, well, I don't have that person's gifting, so what can I do? But Peter says, use whatever gift God has given you, use that to serve others. And as you do, you are a faithful steward of God's grace. We often talk about our mission as a church is to help people encounter grace, grow in grace and become grace givers. And sometimes people ask me, well, how do I give grace if it belongs to God? And I say, because God has given you grace as he has given you talents and abilities. When you offer those in service to other people, you become a conduit, a pipeline, a means through which God pours his grace in the life of another that word steward literally means manager, that you are a manager of God's grace. So let me ask you, how are you managing what God has given you? Are you willing to step into the call and the mission to live as an exile and stranger where you are a faithful witness who is telling others what it is to follow Jesus with a sense of gospel readiness? Now, let, let's get a little more real for a second, right? Because... Um, 
when, when we talk about this idea of being on mission, what I don't want this to be is like, you know, the rah-rah speech and then we walk out the door and it's like, okay, the routine of things, got to get this ready and, you know, life happens and then it just dissipates, right? So let me address some, uh, I think, excuses that crop up from time to time for us not to be invested in the mission of God, right? So one of the excuses that we make is this. Uh, we don't think we can make a difference. Do, do you ever think about, you know, my, my workplace? I'm, I'm not the boss. I don't call the shots. So, I mean, what difference can I make? Uh, Pastor, you don't know my family. It's so broken. There, there's no difference that can be made there. I, I, I'm only me. I only have so much to offer. What, what can I possibly do? And to that, I say, look at Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, which says this, you are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to do, right? The very word of God says that God has handcrafted you. He has formed you. He has shaped you. He has given you a purpose, Right? And to that excuse, what difference can I make? The Apostle Paul in Ephesians says, literally God has handcrafted you or you are his masterpiece, his handiwork designed and created to play a, a crucial role in the culture of his kingdom in the redemptive unfolding of what God is doing. Sometimes we might make this, uh, this excuse of saying, you know, uh, pastor, honestly, I'd really just rather conform to culture. It's just easier. I don't want to stick out, right? I don't want, I don't want to be the holy roller at work. I don't want to be that person that when I walk in, they're like, ooh, here comes the Bible thumper, right? Nobody wants to be that guy. Like, it's just easier to blend in. And to that, I say, look, look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul says this. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Where Paul says, you're not who you used to be. Step out, live into this transformed life that God is calling you into. It's Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. We don't get to go back to who we used to be. We've been transformed and redeemed and set free of that. We don't get to conform to culture. When you are battle ready with the armor of God, you step out with a gospel readiness that conforms to the culture of the kingdom of God that models a different way. And at moments, that's going to stand out in a culture that looks so diametrically opposed to the cause of Christ. Sometimes our excuse is this, right? Uh, we're cynical about whether or not anything can actually change. Right? I mean, things are just so broken. Things are just so far from where, like, can anything really happen? Right? And to that, I say this. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 6, where Paul says this. He says, as for you, and that's plural there, like, as for y'all, y'all were dead in your transgressions and sins in which y'all used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Verse 3, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh, and following its desires. We were by nature objects of wrath. Catch this, verse four. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. Church, if God can make broken, sinful people like you and I who are dead in sin and transgression, if he can redeem us and transform us and bring us back to life, I have to believe that there is no situation beyond the grasp of God's grace to redeem and to transform and to make new and to fill with hope. And sometimes, church, our cynicism about God's ability to bring transformation and redemption tells us how small our faith is and refuses to acknowledge how big our God is. Let me ask you, what is that situation in your life that you have assumed that God cannot redeem or transform or make new? We were dead in our sins and transgressions, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. And if he can do that in your life and in my life, I think there's nowhere that God can't bring transformation and redemption. Finally, last excuse that I want to address for not being on mission. We're battle ready, but not engaged. We make this excuse. 
Life is busy and I'm just trying to get by. Right? I, I feel this. I felt this the last year during all the pandemic craziness. A year and a half ago when our, our kids' school shut down and trying to, to work as much as I can while also being a teacher for my kids and I'm a horrible teacher. If you were a teacher, God bless you. I have a whole new appreciation for what you do because trying to sit with a, a preschooler, a kindergartner, first grader on a Zoom meeting, y'all, if purgatory exists, I think it looks something like that. <laughs> so incredibly awkward. You know, they're sitting there like, what do I say? And I'm like, I, I don't know, right? That, that was a hard moment. And this year took a lot of energy from a lot of us. But, and I think we launched into this place where it's like, I'm just trying to get by. I, I don't have time. Like, th- this sounds like, a great vision, but I don't have time to invest myself in any more places. And to that, I say, listen to Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter three, verse 16. Paul says this, he says, I pray that God out of, out of his glorious riches would strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love would have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, catch this, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Listen to what Paul prayed. He said, out of the glorious riches of God, that he would strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. There is no just getting by in the kingdom of God. We serve a God who says, come to me and I will pour out the riches of strength and empowering in, in my grace and through my spirit that enables us to go and be a people on mission. Because church, if we are not praying and interceding for and bearing witness to the gospel in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families, who is? The call of Paul in Ephesians 6, the pastor Steve talked about so well last week, is not just to be battle ready. It's to actually get engaged. And too many of us, right, are like that football player I talked about on the sidelines. We have an opportunity that God is saying, here, there's a spiritual moment in front of you. And we're like, no, I'm good. I'm I'm just going to sit on the sidelines, disengaged. I don't think we have that luxury, church. So I want to leave you with three things, three three application points that I think are simple. Number one is I want us to be aware. If if you noticed carefully, when we read 1 Peter, he talks about be alert, be of sober mind. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, be alert. When we're aware, what I want us to do is to begin to pray, God, would you give me eyes to see the spiritual needs that are all around me? God, would you give me opportunity to have spiritual conversations? God, would you give me opportunity to bear witness to the truth of the gospel? And I promise you, if you pray for that awareness, God is going to bring things your way. Two, I think this means being aware of the needs of our our family, our our community, our, our local context, right where God has us. And what I think is beautiful about, about our church is it's not just Brookings, right? There are people here from uh, Aurora and Arlington and Flandreau, uh, all, all over the place, all the surrounding communities. If you're watching online, you were part of a community that God has invested uh, you with spiritual authority and responsibility in. The question is, are we living on mission, not just battle ready, but engaged spiritually in those places? Secondly, church, I want to encourage us to pray. Ephesians 6.18, Paul says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. It's not just prayer. This is one of the core fundamental things that we do. And finally, I want to encourage you to invest your time, talent, and treasure in bearing witness to the gospel right where Jesus has you. 
As we close this morning, the band is going to lead us in a a song called Pour Me Out. And and I want to encourage you to use this as a prayer of response. God, would you provide opportunities for me to be poured out for the cause, cause of Christ, to be an agent of peace right in the context where you have me? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be a part of the redemptive work that you're unfolding. God, I thank you for the truth of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which you've prepared in advance for us to do. That in you, we have purpose and we have significance. So God, let us not just be a people who are battle ready, but God, let us actually get engaged and give ourselves to the mission that's in front of us. God, help us by your grace and through the power of your spirit to bring redemptive, transformative possibilities to our families, to our workplaces, to our neighborhoods, to every culture and context that you've invested us with influence. That we might see the redemptive purpose of your kingdom unfold. God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.